You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Tracy Turner, no relation to Tina Turner or Tracy Turnblad, Tracy Turner is addicted to porn, or so he says, which is why he couldn't make himself available to the police when they showed up wanting to talk to him. He wasn't gooning in front of his laptop when the police arrived. He was off in porn rehab. It was only after Turner got out of porn rehab and came home that the police could finally ask him about the minor he had allegedly been molesting. If you consume nothing but right-wing media, and God help you if that's the case, you might think, with the minimal facts I've introduced into evidence here about Tracy Turner, that Tracy must be one of those drag queens out there grooming children. For the last year, right-wing media has been all groomer all the time. It's a concerted, coordinated effort to revive the gays recruit kids blood libel. Used to mean seducing kids into the homosexual lifestyle. Right-wingers now insist that just by being out, just by being visible, gays and lesbians, queers are grooming children. This has been coming from anonymous haters on the internet to elected officials in governor's mansions. And these people are obsessed with drag queens, particularly with drag queen story hours in public libraries, where kids are not left alone. They aren't unsupervised, not like kids at churches. Tracy Turner worked at a church, not a drag club. He was a pastor, not a queen, a Southern Baptist, pastor at the Trinity Point East Church in Easley, South Carolina. And unlike every drag queen who has performed at a drag queen story hour, Turner is under arrest for raping a child, allegedly. And Turner is just one of the many, 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 many pastors and youth pastors and priests and bishops and church officials who have been arrested for child rape. If kids got raped by clowns as often as they get raped by preachers, it would be against the law to take your child to the circus. But if you're following only right-wing memes slash hate Twitter, you would think the gravest threat to your kids? Drag queens. Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, last week announced that he was planning to order his Department of Child Protective Services to investigate parents who take their kids to drag queen story hour events. You know, it's almost like they want you to be afraid of drag and afraid of queer people who don't present a risk to your kids and not afraid of rapey preachers who do. If I was the conspiracy-minded type, I might say it looks like, or I might say they actually are, actively running interference for child rapists who are up on the altar, not up on the runway. In Idaho this weekend, the police arrested 31 members of Patriot Front, a violent white nationalist organization who were on their way to a family pride celebration in a park. They were going there, masked, with the intent to riot. That is, to attack the families at that kid-friendly daytime pride celebration. In Alameda, California this weekend, a group of Proud Boys barged into a drag queen story hour at a public library, screaming at the parents and terrorizing the children. They want people to think kids aren't safe at pride events or drag queen story hours, so they're showing up at pride events and drag queen story hours to threaten kids. 
Zooming out for a second, I don't know why we suddenly started having drag queen events for kids. I'm old enough to remember when seeing drag queens lining up for the Pride Parade at 10 a.m. was startling. Drag queens were nocturnal. They came out after dark, like the stars or raccoons. But over the last decade or so, since shortly after RuPaul's Drag Race premiered in 2009, We've been experiencing something of a drag boom. We have more drag queens now than we know what to do with. We used to have drag shows and gay bars at night. Then with so many new drag queens coming online every day, drag bingo, then drag brunches, drag cruises, drag cons, more and more drag races, so many drag races. And now drag brunches, drag queen story hours, which is fine. Now, it should be said, and I am happy to say it, not all drag shows, not all drag performers are appropriate for kids, just like not all TV shows are appropriate for kids. Not all animated movies are appropriate for kids. Not all dinner party conversations are appropriate for kids. I wouldn't watch Ozark with an eight-year-old or South Park bigger, longer, and uncut. Wouldn't watch that with a child. And I wouldn't want a kid at the dinner table when the adults were talking about sex or drugs or mass shootings, but certain kinds of drag shows and certain kinds of drag queens, fine for kids. The mainstreaming of drag didn't start with RuPaul. Every female character Shakespeare created, Lady Macbeth, Portia, Rosalind, Kate, all written for male performers. Men in dresses played Juliet, Cleopatra, Desdemona. I wouldn't date the mainstreaming of drag to 1594 when Romeo and Juliet premiered in London, I would date it to 1989 when The Little Mermaid premiered. That Disney film featured a character, Ursula, one in a long line of queer-coded Disney villains. Ursula was modeled on a real-life drag queen named Divine, who starred in John Waters' trash camp classics Pink Flamingos, Female Trouble, Polyester, and Hairspray. Kids understand what dress-up is, what playing pretend is. Kids also like outrageous, over-the-top, campy performers. When kids see a drag queen, they don't see an advertisement for gender reassignment surgery or anal sex. They see a fun and friendly clown, which is ironic because a clown is what I see when I look at Ron DeSantis, but a dangerous clown, a Pennywise, not a bozo, a John Wayne Gacy, not a Ronald McDonald. And assuming DeSantis doesn't have blood on his hands already, he will soon. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your Q, lots of my A, and on the Magnum, actor and author Ryan O'Connell, star of Special on Netflix and one of the stars of the new Queerest Folk reboot, joins me. We talk about sex, disabilities, fetishizing disability, and who thought up Come Spring Up first, me or him. To hear that convo, you're going to need to subscribe to the Magnum Lovecast, which you can do at savage.com. Hey, Dan. This is a person in the blue part of the South. I'm 44 by male. My partner is a 33 by female. We've been in a relationship and living together for uh, almost two years. She wants me to be myself. She wants me to do the things that I want to do in the moments of our relationship uh, in terms of sex. I tend to be dominant, she tends to be submissive, and she wants me to just do the things that I want. My experience has been, because I've been in the kink community for a long time, that consent and negotiation are always so paramount. We have safe words. We know that she will stop in a moment, but I think really at heart the issue is that 
most of my relationships, I have worried so much about making sure that I give pleasure to my partners, that I'm there for them, and I kind of have lost touch with what I genuinely want on my own, and I'm trying to figure out how to figure that out again. You know, as a person who's a full-blown adult, I, you know, I've always said that my biggest kink is my partner's kink. Whatever my partner is into is the thing that I most want to do. And I think that what she is asking and what I am truly unable to answer is absent of a partner, what are the things that I want to do the most? What are the things that I desire the most? So I'm just trying to navigate that and figure out what it is that I want as a person who has focused so much on my partner's wants and desires for so long and literally turned that into sort of my fetish. So all these years you've been involved in the kink scene, you've identified and functioned as a service top. It was about meeting the bottom's needs, playing the role that that bottom that you were with wanted you to play. And now you're with somebody who wants it to be a little edgier, who wants to feel a little bit more like in the moment with you, armed with safe words where they can stop things that aren't working for them, that it's a bit more of a bungee jump, that they don't know what's going to come next, that it's not so scripted. That is possible. I mean, you have to get in touch with what it is that turns you on. I imagine when you don't have a partner, you masturbate, you think about things, you fantasize about things, uh, that before you got involved in the kink scene, you were watching kink porn or reading kink erotica. And not a lot of kink erotica is framed around the idea of being a service top and figuring out just what the bottom wants and hitting those marks. So maybe you just need to project yourself back into your life a decade or two or three when you were first realizing who you were and what you wanted and what turned you on and what you were masturbating about and get back in touch with that. And I can't tell you what those things are. That said, however, you're still going to have to engage in a process of negotiation with your partner about their hard limits, about things that as a sub they might be willing to endure for the pleasure of their top, even if they aren't necessarily things that they like or enjoy, but can tolerate and can tap into the pleasure of giving you that pleasure as a sub or a masochist, you're still going to have to have those kinds of broad negotiations. My follow-up question to you would be, how experienced is your current partner as a sub? Some people who have submissive desires, have shame about those submissive desires, have a hard time expressing what it is that they want and they turn to their top who they trust and say, I don't want to articulate these things. I just want you to guess. That's not for a lot of tops something that works. It is perilous and it is not quite crazy making, but it can make the top feel, you know, insecure and, and worried that they're going to guess wrong because the chances that you might guess wrong absent information and negotiation are pretty high. And, you know, if you're a decent, kind person and still a top, it can be traumatizing. You know it can be traumatizing to do something to someone who's in subspace, you know, who is submissive, that really doesn't work for them. You know, this is tricky, varsity-level 
sex play. And if you're not an asshole and yet you're also a top or a dom or a sadist, you want to make sure that while you're doing these things, you're not inflicting trauma on someone. And the only way to make sure of that is to negotiate, 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 negotiate. And then after those negotiations, when you know what the marks are, they might like you to hit, you can find room to play in the margins and the edges, pushing the envelope, it's often called, where you're not taking you know, a giant leap, but a little baby step to push them maybe outside their comfort zone while they have the safe word you know, in their head that they can deploy at any time if something really isn't working for them suddenly. But if what your partner wants is for you to guess because they're having a hard time articulating what it is that they want, that's not somebody that you can safely play with, that you're going to feel safe playing with as a top. Somebody in a BDSM context doing something, you know, crazy or what they really wanted to do and the sub just has to go along, that can traumatize a sub. But you know what? People don't talk about this a lot. It can traumatize a top in the moment to realize that the hurt you've inflicted or the pain that you've caused is an erotic, that it's just hurt and pain and trauma and not theatrical subjugation, as John McWhorter called it on the show. And that's not fair for a sub to ask a dom to take those kinds of risks, not just with the sub's emotions, but with the top's own emotions. Hi there, tech savvy, at-risk youth. After years of monogamy, my husband and I finally agreed to play with others. We used our words, we talked about it, we have rules. Before anybody gets all judgy, we're both fully vaccinated and been mask wearing social distancing like everybody else who lives in Washington until two weeks ago when I got a grinder account, hung out our flag, and bam, the boys responded. More options than any reasonable couple could expect, at least for us. I mean, we're neither gin bunnies nor attractive. We're too old to be trinks, too young to be daddies. So as tribalist gay men, I was kind of thinking like nobody would want to fuck us. Turns out a whole bunch of boys want to fuck us. All of this is great until we actually tried to have a threesome. Um, my husband, who has been dead set against this for years, took to fucking other boys like it was cake. I cannot even get an erection, which has never been a problem until today. What the fuck is wrong with me? I wanted this. I mean, I've wanted this for years. And I waited. I patiently, gently encouraged. I asked. We talked. Now that I have it, my dick won't play. I'm not jealous. I'm not nervous. I don't have body issue hangups. I talk so much about this to my partner and our new friends, all three of them, um, I can't interrogate what's going on in my head anymore. The boys are hot, not out of our league hot, you know, just average dude body types like ours on paper. Well, grinder chat, we should be perfectly compatible, similar kinks, similar views, into the same things, yet I'm not into it. My partner is great. Our sex life is great. I know from listening and reading over the years what we have, everyone wants. If I ask it to go back to being a monogamist, he would in a heartbeat, but I don't want that. I want to I wanna have threesomes. I want to fuck around with other boys, but I can't get in the game. So what do I do? What the fuck do you mean that you are not attractive? I mean, okay, okay. You, right, you, yeah, you so wait. No, 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 stop. No, I'm not, no, I'm not done <laughs> scolding you yet. You tell me that you and your boyfriend get on Grindr. You say you're not gym bunnies, not old enough to be daddies, young enough to be twinks. Then you say we are not attractive. And yet you have a pile of responses from guys who are interested in fucking the two of you, which is all the proof you need 
that you are indeed attractive. I mean, I think everybody got a little less attractive during COVID. So personally, like I, I have a belly. I've never had one of those before. It's a little bit of a, you know, thing for me. So, you know what I mean? Like I said, we're not ripped. We're not buff. But I mean, I mean, obviously, yes, you're right. We're, we're cute enough. I'm adorable okay, okay. and fun. You can't um, be those gay guys you know. who complain about sort of gay beauty standards, impossible to realize body standards who then run themselves down for not living up to those body standards when indeed belly, no belly, you're attractive and people are into you. Maybe some people are into you not despite the belly because of the belly. Bellies are attractive for some men. These beauty myths and standards, they only have the power we give them, which is why I wanted to open this call, getting you on the phone with a little bit of pushback against this not attractive shit. When you literally have all the proof you need, you are attractive. You're, I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. Like I am, I mean, we are as a couple, we are a, a commodity on Grinder. I mean, that is a thing. Like I get blown up way more than what we could ever possibly, you know, play around with. So I do, I do hear you and I will keep my mouth shut and not be a one. No, I don't, I don't, I don't want you to keep my your mouth shut. I want, I mean, you, know, you, you know. heard me. I want to hear you. I want to hear you say we're attractive. We are attractive. Okay, moving on. One threesome? Are we talking about okay. one threesome here? Uh, n- no, we've had more than one. <laughs> and this has been a problem each time? You haven't gotten your dick to come out to play? Can't get in the game each time? No, no. Okay. All right. So, like, the first guy, like, definitely came out to play. And uh, honestly, um, I think we 86'd him um, <laughs> because... He was a little too into me, and uh, I was a little too into him for my partner's comfort level, which is totally a valid thing and one of our rules. And anytime any one of us kind of gets that feeling that, like, one of us could catch feelings, it's, it's kind of an over thing, and we just move on. And so, you know, the first guy was great. Everything was awesome. And since then, I just have not been able to. And, and we've tried. I mean, I've tried. How many times are we talking about here? Um, so thus far, five Five boys and one couple. So, and each seven, time, except for the first men. time, each time you haven't been able to get it up. Right, right. Okay. I don't know what's going on. You know, we cut me off from sex. We edged me. We made the rule where if my dick doesn't come out to play, the sex still happens. I mean, mm-hmm. um, it's just, I don't know. So, I've talked to everybody. And like I said, I've I listened to your podcast for a long time. I mean, literally, Dan, I'm 34. When Kit and I first got together, I was 17. We're wow. still not married. I mean, I, I just don't know what I don't know what to do. I don't know if it's anxiety. I don't know if it's like pressure. I don't know if I'm not really. I mean, I'm 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 into these boys on a, you know, mental level, but then physically, it's just not happening. And my my husband thinks it's a partner. He thinks it's um, you know, like cognitive dissonance, like the idea of hooking up with threesome sounds cooler than what the what I actually find the practicality of doing that. Mm-hmm. And I really don't feel like that's the case. You know, we don't play, we only play together. We don't play separately. So I don't know at this point in time, I don't know what else I can do. Okay. Let me jump in and, here. Let me jump in here. Yeah. You can get it up when you masturbate, right? Yes. And when it's just the two of us, yes. And when it's just the two of you. Okay. So there's some anxiety attached to bringing a third person into your sexual connection. And maybe it was, you know, catching mild feelings or having a mild crush 
on your very first three-way partner, which I wouldn't think is a problem. I like it when people who are having sex with each other like each other just because you really like somebody or you're really into them. Um, that can be a problem if it feels disproportionate. If it's clear that person is more into one person than the other person in a long-established couple, that can arouse jealousy that poisons a three-way and makes it impossible. It's a really good idea if you are the third and you're more into one person than the other person that you shouldn't have to lie or dissemble, but that you compensate for that in some way. That I guess I'm saying lie. You have to cover that up a little bit if you want to keep having those threesomes or you will be shown the door as this guy was shown the door, right? But if you can get it up alone and you can get it up when it's just you and your boyfriend, what you need to do if you want to keep having these three ways is find the bridge that makes the three way feel a bit more like you're alone or like it's just you and your boyfriend. Now, when you and your boyfriend are having a very special guest star over what's on the menu, everything full intercourse, oral sex, what's on the menu? Um, I'm, I mean, t- typically speaking, like the first time is just like, you know, a meet and greet. We'll probably, you know, get high, maybe have a few drinks, see if there's chemistry there. When you masturbate and have sex with your partner, your long-term partner, do you get high and have a few drinks? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. So I mean, it's not, not, not every time, not every single time, just, you know, mo- like I'm, I'm a giant stoner, not, not much of a drinker, but I, I mean, I'm, I've been a stoner since I was a kid. So mm. lots, lots of pot smoking. I mean, you know, it's one of the benefits of living in Washington. Okay. You might want to <laughs> experiment there. The next time you have a three way, let them have a drink. If they want to have a drink, let them get high. If they want to get high, you don't see if that doesn't help. Like you're going to have to okay. do some little experiments here. Also, when your boyfriend, your long-term partner, gets with other guys, what are they doing? Fucking? It varies from person to person. I mean, you know, we don't go into these situations with, like, expectations or a preset game plan. Like, yeah, there's dirty talk. But, but everything's but, like, on the menu. You're not... that's, what I, that's what I cleared out. Everything's on the menu. Yes. Everything's possible. Yes. I mean, everything is theoretically possible. Yes. All right. So here's what you're going to do. The next time you have a three-way, you make it clear to that person that their first time with you guys you two, you and your boyfriend are going to have sex and they're there to roll around, play around and assist. And that doesn't mean it'll only ever be thus with your third or with them, but at least the next couple of times, what you want is someone really more of a voyeur than a participant, right? And you make some baby steps up to including that third person that allows for you to do the things that right now you know work. And you've probably heard me suggest this to other people about different kinds of anxieties around sexual activity, but get a fucking blindfold and put it on yourself and create a scenario for yourself where somebody else can be in the room and you can kind of forget they're there. Like literally get a voyeur, get someone who does, who wants to watch, not touch and perform for that person okay. you and your boyfriend. And if you need to wear a blindfold or keep your eyes clamped shut so you can forget they're there and just tap into what you know works, you and your boyfriend doing it like you do it, do that. And then what you're going to do is create a new association. You're going to create some, you're going to put it in your head that you can be three guys in a room and you can get your dick hard. Dicks are so susceptible to self-fulfilling or self-deflating prophecies. The, The more times you say, my dick won't play, I can't get in the game, the likelier it becomes your dick won't play and you can't get in the game. You, you sound like a, a, a wonderful guy, an intense guy, and a, a guy who's very much in his head and in his thoughts. And that first three-way you had worked and your dick was there, right? Your dick came out, your dick played, right? Yes. 
And then yeah, the next three where you had your dick didn't come out and you've been doom scrolling, basically. You've been prophesying doom ever since when that sometimes happens. And it, it, in a circumstance that's new or novel or much anticipated and desired, the stakes are high. You've wanted to have threesomes. You've wanted to have an open relationship for a very long time. Well, you're, you, you did it. You're the dog that caught the car full of dick. And so you're a little on edge and a little nervous about it. And so you just have to give yourself, it sounds like you're doing this. You have to give yourself permission not to overdetermine that one time when your dick didn't get hard. But what I think what you've been doing is ever since that second time, instead of saying, hey, I'm batting 500, the first time my dick was in the game, everything worked. Second time, eh, not so much. And then shrugging it off, you've been telling yourself in the same way that you told yourself you're not attractive. You've been telling yourself ever since that second time, my dick won't come out to play. I can't get in the game. And what you need to to get in the game, you need to get yeah, out of I your mean, head. I mean, I completely agree with you that that is the problem that I am completely in my head. And you're, and you're right. This There is a lot on the line here. I mean, in terms of like, you know, Kit no, is very stop, much... No, 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 no. There's not a lot on the line. There's not a lot on the line here. There's the occasional three-way on the line here. In a relationship that's got legs, long-term, very stable, you guys still, after all these yeah, years, I mean, yes. have a great sexual yeah. connection. You said you could go back to monogamy tomorrow, and your boyfriend would also with you go back to monogamy tomorrow. So the stakes are actually low, right? You're not going to wind up dumped in a week if you can't start getting hard-ons at these three, these optional three-ways, right? So this is about having fun. And you can have fun without a hard-on. You say you've allowed yourself that. You can have fun without a hard-on. You can be the voyeur sometimes and hang back and watch your boyfriend have fun with somebody else. But the stakes are lower than you're allowing them or, or, or telling yourself that they are. And that's what you need to do. You need to lower the temperature everywhere. Instead of telling yourself you're not attractive, you are attractive. Instead of telling yourself my dick's not in the game, you tell yourself I'm batting 500. Or if it's been five three-ways now, batting two-something. I'm very bad at stats and sports metaphors. I need to get my brother on the phone. But you're doing okay. And now what you're going to do with the next three-way, when you and your boyfriend have another one, is you're going to have partnered sex with your boyfriend with somebody else in the room. And rather than presenting that to that third person as this is a sad tragedy and a demotion and you know, we can't okay. offer you everything. What you're going to offer is that, and somebody's going to want, someone's going to be very attracted to that prospect. We're a long-term couple. We want to fuck in front of somebody that's going to attract someone just like you and your belly attracted a whole bunch of people. So put that out there, have blindfolds at the ready and let your dick show up. Have a different kind of threesome, a different kind of sexual adventure. And just chill the fuck out. You need to chill the fuck out. That's what you need to do. You need to talk yourself down. Blindfold, chill out. I'll, I'll call and let you know how it goes. And actually, I got somebody lined up for tomorrow, so I'll call you back one day. Good luck. All right. Thank you. Bye, Dan. Bye. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. My husband and I are parents to an 11-year-old girl. She and her friends are talking a lot lately about pronouns they prefer, whether they're bi, gay, straight, etc. This is a topic they're talking about a lot. 
and which is fine, seems totally appropriate for their age. My main question is how to respond. And here's a scenario, a, a situation that happened. My daughter, her friend, they were sitting in the kitchen, they were chatting. Her friend says that that she's bisexual. They weren't talking to me. My back was to them. I don't know if they were talking intentionally loud enough for me to hear. And I didn't know how to respond. I, I kind of first felt compelled to say, oh, oh, great. Yay. We love you. We love you exactly how you are. But then was I making this a big deal? Is it a big deal? Did I, did I just miss an opportunity to support our daughter and her friend who, who we love and is at our house all the time? What should I say? Because I'm certain this will come up again. And I just want to convey our acceptance and our love to our daughter and her friends in terms of whatever they are, however they want to be, however they feel they are, and however they want to be called. But I don't want to make a big deal of it, but please tell me if I should. So your daughter and her friend were having a conversation with each other. They weren't talking with you, but they were talking someplace where you could hear them. So I think as a parent, it would have been within your rights to butt in for a second and say, oh, hey, you guys just want to let you know that we love you, however you are, whatever you are, down with the queers, down with the pronouns. And then, mom, I think you need to butt the fuck out and let them have that conversation with each other. It's really important for kids to know that their parents will love and support them or do love and support them. If they're straight, if they're bi, if they're trans, if they're gay, if they're lesbian, if they're some other flavor of queer, whatever their pronouns are. And I think that's something that a parent needs to say to a kid, but also communicate to a kid in other ways. Do you have queer friends and relatives? Are they around? Do you demonstrate, it's important to demonstrate your love and support for queer people, not just with words and checking in with your kids once or twice in their childhood, but through your actions throughout your kid's life. All that said, your daughter was having this conversation with her friend. I think most kids want to be able to talk with their friends in their homes without their parents listening or butting in. But, you know, if your daughter really wants these conversations to be private, maybe not have them in the kitchen when mom is hovering, you know, if it embarrasses your daughter for you to rush in there with words of love and support, well, then they need to take that conversation to her bedroom or to the treehouse in the yard or wherever they can have it privately. But when you overhear these sorts of conversations, I think you should check in with your kid, maybe with your kid alone later, but also in the moment if you think it's important for that kid to hear, particularly if you don't think that kid gets that kind of affirmation, love, support at home, the kid your kid is talking to, important for that kid to hear that from you as well. But you can jump in, say that you're likely from 11-year-old girls or 11-year-old non-binary they-thems, get some eye rolls, but important to say it, and then mom, do them the favor of bouncing. Hey, Dan, I love your show. I am a 24-year-old straight female from Chicago, and I was calling with a question about my long-term boyfriend. We've been dating for about three years, and I've known since the very beginning that he had two kids that were left in his old home state. Now, at the beginning, he seemed very lovable with his kids, very much missed them, and as the years tapered on, less of a conversation has been happening about them. 
Now, recently, since we've been together for so long, I've been thinking about having kids with him and realizing I don't know if I can actually have kids with someone who doesn't have a relationship with his past children. I'm kind of in a hard spot because I know it's none of my business what he does with his children, and I'm in no way in a position to tell him you must reconnect with your kids. But I also feel like I do get a say over who I have children with, but I don't know if I'm the asshole now having this conversation, given that I've known for the past three years that he's had these kids and they are in his life. And I'm only really thinking about this now that I'm starting to think about being a mom. Look, if you don't want to go out with your boyfriend anymore, if he's not someone that you can picture yourself making a family with, having children with, having a long-term future with, you should just end this relationship. You leave a lot of details out of your call. How old is your boyfriend? How old are his children? What are the circumstances here? Uh, What led to this estrangement? Are these very young children you're talking about? Are they older children who have a say in whether or not they make time available for their parent who lives in another place and has another girlfriend? Is he in a contentious relationship with his ex? Is it a high conflict relationship? And this led to the estrangement. Did his ex, as sometimes happens, emotionally manipulate his children and help to engineer this estrangement? And he's stepping back now just to give them space, not to force himself on them. There's a lot of nuance potentially in a situation like this. It's not just he abandoned his children and therefore you're nervous about having a child with him. Although it could be that he could be the sort of callous motherfucker who has kids and walks away from those kids. In which case you probably shouldn't have been dating him at all, but you're so young. You're 24 years old. You've been with this guy for three years. You've been with this guy potentially since before you could legally buy a beer. And it seems to me that Most people in your situation don't wind up forever with the person they were dating at age 20 or 21. And if you want out of this relationship or if you're looking at him in a new light because you're thinking about the long term, thinking about children, and so you're seeing him in a different way and you're assessing him as a potential long-term partner now in a way that you didn't before and he doesn't seem like a good candidate – okay, you had a a good three-year run with this guy and you should end the relationship. And while I think it's true, I think you're right when you say that as his partner now, you don't have a say over whether or not or what kind of relationship he has with, I'm going to quote you here, his past children, his children from a previous relationship. They're not in his past. They exist, these children. He is still their father, you could say to him, you could ask him about this. You could draw him out about this. It may change your feelings or you may see him in a different, different light and another new light. If he opens up to you about the pain that he may be experiencing in as a result of this estrangement from his children, maybe it's not, a t- it doesn't sound like based on what you said, it's a topic that you two have addressed together, discussed, faced together squarely. So before you make your final ultimate decision about whether to end this relationship, whether he's someone that you would want to have children with or could have children with, I think you should have that first conversation with him about his children, the children he already has, and about why he doesn't seem to have 
a relationship with them. And who knows, maybe that conversation, the conversation that you're going to initiate might inspire him to reach out to those kids and reestablish his relationship with them. We're going to take a quick break from the calls to speak with actor, producer, author, and Emmy-nominated writer Ryan O'Connell, best known for his work in Netflix's special. He is in the new Queer as Folk reboot, Revival, premieres exclusively on Peacock on June 9th. Hey, Ryan O'Connell, how are you? Hi, thank you for inviting me to your horny corner of life. <laughs> well, thank you for demeaning yourself by coming on to my skeezy podcast. Uh, uh, I, w- I went and looked for you on Twitter, uh, but you're not on Twitter. I stumbled over Ryan O'Connor, who plays hockey for the Toronto Maple Leafs, but that ain't you. Yeah, well, he's a spiritual sister to me, of course. But no, I got off Twitter when I decided that I no longer needed it. <laughs> oh, my God. that makes That, that cuts me to the core because I am still... On Twitter, and I guess I kind of need it. All right, Dan, so, you don't need it. I'm going to tell you right now, you don't need it, and there are much more interesting ways to feel bad about yourself. <laughs> uh, well, I'm Catholic and gay and old. There's all sorts of ways to feel bad about myself, and I don't need Twitter's help, but man, Twitter makes it worse. Uh, you have a new book coming out, Just By Looking At Him. Uh, you wrote a, a memoir called Special, which was about a you know a, a gay man working in television, cerebral palsy. That your memoir, your, your story, just by looking at him, gay man, cerebral palsy, uh, working in television. What are the, and I don't have a problem. I, I think that's great. Like there's a lot to mine there. Mm-hmm. One of the things people say, you know, memoirs are sales jobs. You can't quite tell the full truth. You'll hurt people. But like Camus said, fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth. So I'm curious since you've just written a work of fiction that obviously mines some of your real life. What are the truths you're telling in this book that you couldn't tell in your memoir? The novel definitely feels more honest, at least emotionally. I mean, first of all, I got my book deal for my memoir at Pause for Laugh 26. So that should have been illegal from the jump, okay? (laughs) That no one at 26 should write a book about their life. Like truly, like God help us all. So I felt like I've always been really unhappy with my first book. And um, I felt like this was sort of a redo. And yeah, it was it was definitely, I mean, so much of it, I always say that the story is fiction, the emotions feel very autobiographical. It's beautiful and hilarious, and and I loved your first book, and I liked oh, the TV, thank you. and I loved the show you did for Netflix based yeah. on it. I laughed my ass off reading just by looking at him. Um, but full disclosure, I got just by looking at him, and I somehow missed the memo that it was a novel, and I started reading it. And you don't name your character for a little bit. I know. And so there's a point at which I'm like reading, going. So, so Ryan is working on a show called Sammy Says. I've never heard of this show. And I paused and Googled Sammy Says. Like, there's no sitcom called Sammy Says. And then I put it together that this was a novel and I feel like an idiot. I'm also touched that you think I'm rich enough to burn bridges in that way. Where, <laughs> where I can just be like, yeah, I worked on this stupid fucking show called Sammy Says. And it was awful. And this person was awful. I'm not there yet, babe. I'm not there. Don't worry. It's going to come. But it ain't there. I've done a little writing down in Hollywood and it kind of, the thing that was hardest for me to get used to was the compliment based economy. Mm -hmm. It is a compliment based economy. I come from newspapers and magazine writing and editing and people are just very blunt. If someone wants to tell you that this isn't working or that you need to do a rewrite, it's blunt. Like this is bad. You can say that this is bad in Hollywood. You have to, it's like giving a pill to a dog. 
you have yes. to wrap it in cheese and compliments to give somebody a new Right, but it still feels like an emotional bottoming. Do you know what I mean? It's just sort of like you don't know how big the dick's going to be until it's inside you. You know what I mean? I, I know exactly what you mean. In your novel, uh, again, which is hilarious, laugh my ass off, lots of messy gays. You live and work in L.A. Like I said, I've worked a little bit in L.A., stayed a little bit in L.A., messy gays everywhere. But the messiest gays seem to clump up in L.A. Yeah, I mean, LA is sort of like a mentally ill daycare. <laughs> <laughs> is that ableist for you? It's not ableist for you to say it. Is it ableist for me to laugh at that joke? Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's not correct. Who knows? But uh, let's give her the freedom for just this one little second. I, I think, you know, this is what happens when I get off Twitter is I just, um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, getting off Twitter probably <laughs> helps with not overthinking everything that comes out of your mouth and wondering how you who's going to jump down your your throat for it but right you had a lot to say in special about ableism in the gay community ableism uh in television in hollywood you've had a lot to say about it yes well because my i feel like my dick's been cut off by society and i feel like my whole life has been just searching for my dick to reattach itself back to my body how, how do you mean is it just that that thing where non-disabled or not disabled yet people because some people <laughs> we're all headed there disabled. we're all headed there we're all yeah headed right there. right yeah is it because disabled people are seen as kind of sexless or without agency yes. or without desirability yeah, absolutely so all i want to do is be objectified and all i want to do is be seen as just a body it would mean so much to be seen for so little <laughs> that's an actual quote from the book <laughs> one of the things that comes up always when disability is an issue. I've talked about this with Andrew Gerza. It actually came up in my column like 30 years ago when I first started writing it. Uh, Andrew Gerza does the podcast Disability After Dark. He's a disability rights advocate. Um, really smart. I, I think you did his podcast too. Yeah. And he's also, he has a cameo in the new Queer as Folk. Oh, that's great. Oh, I yeah. can't wait. Oh, that's right. We haven't talked about that yet. You're in the new Queer as Folk reboot. Um, one of the things that comes up constantly, and Andrew, I think has a really interesting nuanced position about it. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. Some people fetishize certain disabilities. Yes. Yes, they do. They do. I mean, I actually explored fetishization in special in season two where I go on a date with a Hallmark actor who I think is out of my league and then it turns out he just wants me for my disability. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here's the deal. I mean, it's all, to me, predicated upon consent. So it's not really my business to kink shame or yuck someone's yum, but it, there needs to be conversation and communication. I personally have not been fetishized. By golly, Dan, I'm just looking for the right one. Um, <laughs> well, well, that's why I asked this question. I didn't have this in my notes to go here because you just said you want to be objectified. And I talk about this a lot on my show because I don't – you know, people – say objectification is wrong and it's bad and we are objects. And I think there's some part of us that wants to be objectified sometimes, but by someone who doesn't just see us as an object, somebody who can walk and chew gum at the same time, treat us like an object, make us feel objectified while also not losing sight in that moment that we are also a person with feelings and needs and wants. So I'm curious where you would come down because you're pro wanting to be objectified. You talk about it yeah. in this book. This kind of objectification that some people have for disabled people. Andrew talks about it and says he's fine with it. And yeah. I interviewed uh, somebody who had had a limb amputated 25 mm -hmm. years ago. And her point was 
she wanted to be with somebody who was attracted to her for who she was, not despite it. And I thought that yes. was really interesting. Well, I think it's an incredibly personal thing. And I think that there's not one edict for an entire swath of the population to feel a certain way. It is like what you want out of sex, how you want to be seen, how you don't want to be seen is just incredibly personal. How could you say, you know what I mean? That it's like this or like that. Everyone has different things in once. I mean, by the way, I've never been fetishized. Maybe I will one day and maybe it won't feel so good. But that's my journey to figure that out. So it it really just depends on the individual and what they're comfortable with and what they want. So the new queerest folk reboot um, or revival, Mm -hmm. or is it a revival? It's a it's a reimagining story. It's a a reimagining. New cast of characters. Yes. Uh, It it riffs on the American version. It starts in the Babylon bar, Mm -hmm. Uh, but there's a little bit of a controversy here because. it's inspired by the Pulse nightclub shooting. Yes. And it's tricky to release any kind of film or television project that involves a mass shooting because we're always having one. Yes. Here, a real mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And Queer Folk's been tripped up a little bit by the Buffalo mass shooting, the hospital mass shooting yesterday, the mass shooting in Texas at the elementary school. To find that sweet spot in America to bring out something like Queer as Folk where it's been 10 minutes since a mass shooting and so you can slip a work of fiction in there. That's tricky. It is tricky. It's a big swing. I think that it's all about, well, first of all, I think one of art's jobs is to reflect the culture. It is based off of something that happened. Where And it, to me personally, it really is all about execution because I think sometimes Hollywood is addicted to trauma porn and it feels like we're glorifying a certain kind of tragedy. It's not tastefully done. We don't quite know what it's trying to say other than, look at this, look at this, look at this. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I don't think the way that it's depicted in Queer as Folk is trauma porn at all. I think it's incredibly tastefully done. And unfortunately, we're reflecting an event that actually happened. And to me, what really got me interested about it is that because there's a, a, an endless barrage of tragedy, I think it's very easy for these victims and survivors just to become a statistic. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then and then something happens, we give attention to it for two to three days, and then we move on. There's no kind of insight into the aftermath. How do you recover from a thing like this? Like, mm-hmm. what does it look like? Like, how do people treat you? How does it feel like being like a micro-celebrity for three, like for a month and then being discarded? Like, it's like, so that to me was a really exciting thing to explore because Stephen Dunn, the creator and showrunner, spent time with Pulse Survivors. So I thought that was a really interesting side of the story that we never see is what happens now. And I think it does um, great service to humanizing these people that ordinarily would just be a number or statistic. And who do you play in Queer as Folk? What's your character? I play Julian, this kind of like horny, airplane-obsessed, Buffy-obsessed guy that loves getting his dick dick sucked in stalls across New Orleans who has some walls and then has some lols. Well, you're very good at the lols. Special is hilarious. Your new novel is hilarious, especially now that I know it's a novel. Um, (laughs) I want to – I feel obligated to come to the defense of like – 50-something-year-old gay men. I think we get it the worst. Oh, um, honey, I love 57-year-old gay men. I mean, honey, welcome to my demo. I mean, like, literally rail me into smithereens. I have no problem with that. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things I, that really leapt out at me when I read it, uh, and this has come up on my dumb podcast, is Elliot, uh, which is the protagonist mm-hmm. uh, in the book, is in a long-term relationship with Gus. You open by describing 
Gus's dick as beautiful with Elliot talking about his boyfriend's dick. But then you move into really tricky territory that a lot of people like me in the advice relationship industrial complex lie about or don't want to acknowledge that desire wanes in long-term relationships. And at one point you say, please, somebody help us. Elliot and Gus is Elliot talking. No one tells you that in long-term relationships, (laughs) you will never love someone more and want to fuck them less. Yeah. That is a difficult truth that you're telling about LTRs in this novel. Yes. Well, we've been, we, yes, it's a total, it's emotional whiplash and we are taught and we're conditioned to believe that one person should be able to give you everything you need. And somewhat, you know, you hear these stories about, you know, people losing that sexual spark. You think that, especially as gay men, oh, that's not going to happen to me. Um, And then it does. And it feels sort of like some sort of failing on the relationship. But to me, it's not. It really is just the way we, it is. I think we are wired for newness. I think that's just how we're built. And what I love about queer relationships is that, I mean, I'm generalizing here, of course, but I feel like there's a general line of communication and openness that we can Mm -hmm. have, that people trapped in their heteronormative prisons can't. And it's very choose-your-own-adventure. It's very DIY, baby. There are no rules put on us. Um, There's no way a queer relationship should look like. So it really is sort of um, you can figure it out as you go along. And that's one of my favorite things about being gay other than, you know, of course, anal. (laughs) But you do say that Elliot and Gus in in the book – we hadn't had any kind of open relationship discussion. And my experience with same-sex relationships, gay relationships, that distinguishes our relationships from straight relationships is that monogamy is a choice we make. It's not the default setting. And they're not all, babe. Have you met a Disney gay? <laughs> oh my god! Um, <laughs> once or twice, I've I've run in the opposite direction from a Disney gay. Yes, <laughs> I guess. So is Elliot a Disney gay? Elliot and Gus are Disney gays because they didn't have the conversation about whether they're going to be open or monogamous or. Yeah, I mean, I I think you know I always am stunned when I meet a long term gay couple that really hasn't had the discussion, but it does happen. I mean, gosh, there's a lot of us, and so yeah, I think some people still feel nervous to broach that subject for sure. And I think, again, it's conditioning. Absolutely. So much of the way we're the way we're conditioned, what we're taught to believe about relationships, the way they should work is in conflict with how they do. And so many people, you know, that they feel like they're told that if you really love someone, you won't want to sleep with other people. If you really love somebody, um, you're going to be having a ton of sex with that person. And the sex is just going to get better and better, better over time. And then our lived experience in LTRs is very much in conflict with the romantic lies we're told about them. And we end up feeling like we're doing it wrong or there's something deficient or broken about our relationships. But then if you drill down with people and get honest, you find out that this is the universal experience of the LTR is that maybe you have less sex, but when it does happen, it's great. And you remember what was great about it. Or maybe you track toward a more companionate relationship over the decades. I mean, the key is to find someone, I think, that has a real strong sense of self and is very secure. Insecurity to me is raw and has nothing to do with you. It's all them. It's BYOP, bring your own projection. I feel really lucky that my partner, who I've been with for seven and a half years, is very secure in himself. He's very secure in us. So, like, 
For example, when I was in New Orleans filming Queer's Folk, I needed to go on a come springer. And, you know, he did not That's see my that. word. That's my I, word, a come springer. I've been wait, using you've that been saying that? Ages. Yeah, like, uh, come spring. I coined that's that. That's in my book. Okay. So, like, that is in my book. Okay. And I thought I coined that. Okay, no, damn. You can, you can wow. find it on my podcast and in my column. Dan, we're in, a, we're in a fight. We're in an absolute fight. It's getting so uncomfortable. Oh, my I will, God. I will see you in court, mother. Yeah. Brother. Oh, my God. If, see you in come spring of court. If there's not a TM and an asterisk crediting come spring oh, oh, oh. Well, I love that our brains are both diseased by gay smut. So hats <laughs> off. You're my, you're my sister. You're my family. You're my culture. So your long-term partner was like, do what you need to do. Screw oh, yeah. Screw and, he, and he lived his truth, too, because I told him when we got together – I was like, we're going to need to be open because I did not sow my wild oats, baby. I was celibate for almost a decade. So I spent a long time feeling undesirable and I'm having my own kind of coming of gauge at 35. And um, it's taken me this long to not be paralyzed by rejection, not feel hideous. And so, yeah, it was really important for me to carve out that space for myself and do that exploratory work. And he was not threatened by that. And it's made us stronger. Uh, you know, we hear about the relationships that are destroyed by openness. Like we had a three-way, we broke up. Uh, we rarely hear about the relationships that are made stronger by openness. And I think that for gay relationships, it's often the case that some degree of openness, some degree of freedom, erotic autonomy, while being able to have that LTR, while being able to have that commitment makes the commitment stronger because that desire for variety, that desire for adventure yes. and the affirmation of being desired by someone whose job isn't to desire you, those are deeply rooted needs that you either have to stifle or eventually you do something you're not supposed to do and your partner feels betrayed and it can destroy the relationship. I mean, I think people open things up for a variety of different reasons. I think we all know those gay men that have opened things up because secretly you know they're not happy with each other anymore and this is a way to outsource it and it's basically like one step away from Brit Splitsville. Mm -hmm. I think for this, it was so deeply personal to me in terms of what I needed that in a way it felt like it had nothing to do with him. It felt completely separate. Um, so like, you know, I mean, that just felt like a no-brainer to me was like I, I need this part of myself fulfilled. I need to do this kind of work. And I can't imagine, like, a straight person in the same position not being able to do that because, God, that would be awful. So how much dick did you get in New Orleans? Did you keep a count? No, I got – my body count wasn't steep. I'm, like – I'm still, like, you know, she's – it's just the tip. You know what I mean? It's just the tip. I, I did go on prep, which we love and celebrate. But there's still a lot of learning for me to do. You know what I mean? I, I can't fully go – I can't go full slut. I don't know. I, I, I went half slut, I think. The expression body count kind of freaks me out. I, oh, I first really? heard that from a caller like a few years ago in reference to like, you know, 20 years ago, people said my number or the number to mean the numbers of people they slept with. And of course, language is always changing and slang. And then it became body count. And just, I don't know if we didn't have so many mass shootings in this country, maybe I'd be more comfortable with that expression, but I know. Absolutely. Well, let me, let me soften it. Um, let me soften it with some cheesy lactose intolerant moments. So what I loved about it was like, you know, there were the few men that I did have these experiences with, with, you know, sometimes did they feel like the perfect match? Not necessarily, but I was really surprised 
by the amount of kindness that we both exhibited towards each other and these little pockets of intimacy and connection that you can have with someone that typically you're not even really wired for, you don't have much in common. I just felt like it was weird. It was like we were showing up for each other in this kind of beautiful way. And I was people people don't expect people look at anonymous or casual sex and think, well, that must be dehumanizing. That must be, you must be just like being used, treated like a flashlight, discarded, disposed of. And often what those are are very successful short-term relationships where there is a real connection and real affection and a real coming together. Yeah, you can meet up with somebody and have dehumanizing sex with them and feel shitty and used. That can happen in a marriage too, right? Absolutely. gay people seem to have this superpower around those short, brief connections don't have to be defined. We don't have to treat each other like we're disposable even if we're never going to see each other again. And- I love it when that happens. Oh, yeah. The the vulnerability and the intimacy that you can achieve in like 60 minutes. (laughs) I'm serious. Like, and I did realize I was a little like lesbian adjacent because I remember this one guy came over and we started hooking up and I like wasn't super into it because it was so abrupt. And then like he came, I didn't, whatever. And then he was like, do you want to cuddle? And I was like, okay, sure. And then we got to know each other over like an hour. And like I got to know him. And I was like, oh, he's really nice. And then we hooked up again. And I came like immediately. And I was like, oh, I do need to be lubed up just a little bit. Not a lot. Not a lot. But I need a little like 45 minute getting to know you before it's getting to blow you. Do you know what I mean? Emotionally lubed up. I, I, You know what? This is this. I'm the same. Just like we both come Springer came to both of us. I am the same. I need to... Even if it's only going to be a night or a weekend, I need, you know, or a one night stand. I always needed to feel like I could date this guy, which meant I had to do a little bit of forensic analysis to make sure that they were like, you know, somebody I could see myself dating, a good person. And then I could relax and have sex with them. I couldn't, I've never been able to like put my dick through a hole in a glory hole, have sex with a, you know, an anonymous dark figure in a dark room. Like I've always had to feel like, okay, there's some there, there. If circumstances were different, even if only one night stand is possible for us, um, if circumstances were different, I could see myself dating you. Now, can I please fuck you? Well, I, I, you know, I went to Century Day and Night Spa, which was this famous cruising spa in uh, Koreatown in Los Angeles. And I had never been to um, a spa like that. And so I was like, okay, you know, she's she's liking herself right now. It's all good. Let, let's just take this out for a spin and see if it's good. Um, I went. I thought it was amazing. It was sort of like being a part of a history book because, like, gay men have been cruising for forever. So it felt like truly like, okay, like literally paying tribute to our forefathers, addicted. But it really wasn't for me. And I think or I think ordinarily when I was younger, I'd be like, oh, is that my internalized homophobia? Is that because I don't like my body? And I was like, oh, actually, I'm addicted to being gay. You couldn't pay me to be straight. I love my body, TBQH. And so this just fully is not for me. And it's not that complicated. It's not loaded. Like, it just isn't my journey. I'm running out of time with you, and I really want to throw a, a, a question at you. We've talked a lot about gay experiences, messy gays. There's so many great messy gays in your new book, which is again called Just By Looking At Him. But I want to give you a chance to give a little sex advice to a, well, a bi caller, but in an opposite sex relationship. Let's bring it. Hey, Dan. I am a 31-year-old married bisexual living in the Midwest. And I just have a quick question about solo play. Um, Solo masturbation in the context of being in a in a relationship where you share space and you share a bed. I am typically woken up each morning by the solo session of my husband, you know, going to town, 
shaking our bed and it's it's disruptive it's frustrating and i am so irked by it i am not anti-porn uh that really isn't the issue us he's usually looking at you know naked women on reddit um i'm not anti-porn in general i think i'm anti-reddit um because those are real women that are accessible i guess is what i'm saying and i just think it's a little rude because i'm just right there and i'm trying to sleep so i just wonder how other people handle it how other people in relationships handle it especially really open-minded folks who who are not necessarily monogamous um who are king friendly who are ggg how are we handling this in a way that is sensitive and appropriate and respectful but also respecting our own boundaries and our own uncomfortable uh moments how do people handle this well i have been known to jerk off in bed when i can't sleep okay i think i think it's 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 medicine it's pioneer times you know what i mean it's like if you can't sleep you jerk off you come and hopefully you go bye bye so i do that while sharing a bed with my partner who's asleep what was the most kind of surprising thing about this call was that she woke up and the bed would be shaking and i'm like honey it's all about courtesy like when i do it honey i am silent it is silent goddamn night okay he's not waking up to anything all right and so i'm just like the fact that he masturbates next to her is like whatever that didn't like like the fact that he didn't even try to hide it and he's be, like he's truly living out loud next to his girlfriend that's not chic that's not it's not chic it didn't consider it yeah. And and that she's hesitating just to like elbow him and say, go to the couch, go to the bathroom, yeah. go, go to the other, you know, if you have a guest, go somewhere else. Like it's rude that he keeps waking her up in the morning before she's ready to get up to have that wank. I, I think it's fine for a, somebody in a committed relationship to, to masturbate. It's not fine to be so fucking inconsiderate and you're not being not GGG or you're not kink shaming him. You're not being not open-minded by telling him, like, you're being an asshole. Not because you're masturbating, but right. because you're waking me the fuck up. How does he not know how to jerk off quietly? Honey, he's been doing it for a long time. You gotta, you gotta figure that shit out. The, one of the other things that's interesting about this call is her issue with the fact that the women that he's looking at on Reddit right. are accessible. And I'm sorry, caller, I'm here from the future to tell you that Everybody that you can see on the internet, everybody making porn, including the pros, are accessible these days. Yes, OnlyFans. Hello. Yeah, like, OnlyFans. Every porn star, all the cam girls, like they're all out there hustling. And the new thing with porn, if you want to make a career and a living out of it, is interacting with your viewers, fans, clients. And so the women on Reddit are as accessible to him as the women who are pros and doing porn and doing cam work and modeling and bespoke pornography. So yeah, don't worry about that. That's not shocking at all. I was like, honey, that's just the way it is. You know what I mean? It is the way it is. But this shit about him being inconsiderate, don't put up with that. It is not no. kink shaming or jack off shaming to say you're being an asshole. 
I'm just like worried about him medically. Like, why does he need to be so loud? (laughs) (laughs) Some beds are like more easily shook than others. Dan, I don't know how you jerk off, but I can do it quiet as a mouse. Not a creature was stirring. But there's a certain point when you're jerking off where the pace picks up a little bit and there's going to be some rocking of the... I, have, I guess I, I guess I have sturdy bread privilege. I guess I need to check my bed privilege because <laughs> my bed is um, hard as a fucking rock. And God forbid, there's no way to masturbate secretly next to someone sleeping in a water bed. Not that anybody has those anymore. No, that would that would be another kind of nine one one call. <laughs> Can we keep you for one more question? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hi, Dan. So I've been together with this person for like a year and a half, and at first. She and I hung out like constantly, and then I don't know. In the last six months, we hung out like two or three times a week, often more. Um, we've been open the whole time, and like three months in, we set boundaries or made agreements to use condoms with other people, not to bang each other's uh, close friends, to talk about it. If the person's an ex, like former hookups or flings, were not so much of a big deal. If it became consistent, like more than two, and if they hook up more than like two or three times, then disclose it so we can just like talk about it and it can be an open like discussion. Otherwise it's a DADT. So the, the last time we kind of like reaffirmed all of this was like six months ago. Um, and in the, in the last like six weeks, I felt like there was less, I don't know, communication with her and harder to reach. She wasn't hitting me up as much. You know, we just like the odd goodnight text was like not there or whatever. Less affectionate too. Like, I don't know, not like hugging me while I do dishes randomly kind of stuff. Also, I don't know, it felt like we were having sex less. Like the normal range of variability for our libido had like changed or something and she wasn't as into it. Anyway, I kind of was wondering, I was like, oh, is she into somebody or like she been getting with somebody? So I asked her, I was like, have you hooked up with anyone recently, you know, more than a couple of times? And she was like, yes. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's not what we agreed. And she said, what? And I said, we didn't agree on that. So she ended up saying that she didn't remember. She felt so bad and she didn't remember that we, that that was one of the things that we talked about. And honestly, I actually do believe her. She's a pretty spacey person. It's not, it's cool. She's, she's great. She's like the opposite of me in a way. So I, it's nice, but I, I'm like, what, how can you not remember that? So I'm just wondering how should I kind of proceed? Like, should I, the fact that she doesn't remember this, does that indicate she just like doesn't have the emotional intelligence or like, she just like, can't handle that kind of relationship. I've done this kind of thing before, and I, I feel like I've, I know my way around this stuff, but she hasn't as much. So I'm like, man, maybe she just can't take it. Anyway, any help would be great. Spacey Casey. Casey Spacey Casey. Does, does he give her the benefit of the doubt here, or does he break up with her? So I'll be honest, and um, when I heard this call, I, I even got confused about the rules. There were a lot of them, which I love and honor, but I was even, like, losing track. So I, I don't know. I'm kind of like, babe, I forgot too, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yeah, and I thought it was, he went through all of these rules, which included talking about it and disclosing, and then he said, otherwise, D-A-D-T. D-A-D-T stands for don't ask, don't oh, ask, don't tell. Okay. Like, you know what? You do what you're going to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do, but I don't want to hear about it. So, like, you need to figure that out. Either you're going to tell each other everything or you're going to tell each other nothing. Either it's D-A-D-T or it's not. And, you know, if you said, don't ask, don't tell, I don't want to hear about it, and then she didn't tell you, and then she forgot that what she wasn't telling you was something that was on the long list of things that she was supposed to tell you, I think you could give her the benefit of the doubt here. Yeah, I think so, too. And, um, yeah, it just seems kind of like... The- 
that many rules, it's like a full-time job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And if she is spacey and you're into her, like, yeah, I think you need to be not so rigid. And dispense with DADT as a concept at all in your open agreement if so much careful, fine-grained disclosure is also required. It's funny that in in these designing of unconventional relationships, they somehow become, they feel more confining. (laughs) Does that make sense? Like, you're kind of like... you know, I, th- I, I, I no, I, I'm going to push back. I think rules in an open push relationship back. are sometimes important. Even sometimes at the beginning, they can seem arbitrary, some of the rules people set down. And often it's just that the person you want to have the open relationship wants to see that you will respect them and their boundaries. And those boundaries will tend to become looser or be lifted over time once right. your partner feels safe in an open relationship with you. And one of the ways I think people subconsciously make them fellas feel safe in an open relationship is like throwing down some arbitrary shit that then when they see you respect the rules, suddenly they begin to lift them or have less of them over time. Right. Like, like often like the no one I know rule or not in our apartment, not in our bed, not in our time zone. Those are often rules initially that (laughs) then you you realize life is long. (laughs) Life is long and some of your friends are hot. Yeah, absolutely. Put it on my tombstone. Ryan O'Connell, he is in the new Queer as Folk reboot, premiering exclusively on Peacock and June 9th. And he has a new novel out just by looking at him, available for purchase on June 7th. I'm halfway through it, I have to say, so I didn't stumble over Come Springy yet. You'll be hearing from my lawyers. <laughs> I am loving it. It is hilarious. Uh, and I'm going to read the rest of it tonight. Oh, thank you, Dan. And do um, I'm going to start working on my amateur video for Hump. Do I just send it to you directly or is there direct? Yeah, okay. I'll send it directly. Humpfilmfest.com slash submit. Okay, slash dansavage.com. Okay, great. I (laughs) love that. And I'm going to be sending it to you immediately. (laughs) Thank you so much. And congratulations. Thank um, you. On on all your success. It's been really wonderful. To to prep this interview, I rewatched you on the on the the Daily Show, and you're hysterical, and it's great that you're out there representing not just Aww. disabled gay people, but like the gays, all of us. I just but like, but like funny gay people, because the representation matters. <laughs> funny gay people are very important and are the secret to our success. I think to how yeah. far we've come. Absolutely, honey, you got to cover the vegetables and sugar. Hi, Dan. I am a woman in my 30s, living in the Midwest. I have been with my long-term partner for. 10 years this month and, uh, you know, happy, happy pride. My partner is, uh, he identifies as a cis hetero man. So that's, that's fine and good. However, there's plenty of gender queerness going on and I'm not going to pressure him for that. But one of the things that's really, I guess, irking me and also making me confused because I don't know how to help him with this part is, um, he, his identity as a hetero man while wanting to actively fuck men, whether or not he's sober is the severity of like how much he'll talk about it. But like when he's sober, he will talk about, oh, yeah, I want this dude's cock in my ass. I'm like, okay, well, my friend, <laughs> but you might not be straight, but he's stuck on labels and he feels a little bad about having labels attached to him that aren't hetero. And I just, I I keep wanting to support him 
but some of it comes out as super homophobic, which I know that's internalized. But what can I do? What can I do to help him realize that it's it's okay to sleep with whoever you want to sleep with? And I feel like he would be so much happier if he could just not make it an issue for himself. Is your boyfriend miserable or are you just annoyed at having to hear from him about all the dick he wants in his ass and then play along with him when he tells you that he's straight, when he insists that he's straight? There are some men out there who have sex with men who do not identify as gay or bi. If you look up a recent monkeypox story, you'll see that expression or that phrase a lot, men who have sex with men. You'll see it sometimes used in conjunction with or right next to gay men, bi men, and men who have sex with men who do not identify as gay or bi. Now, that can be for cultural reasons. There are some people who are homosexual, I guess, in practice, but feel a kind of estrangement from what they perceive to be a uniform kind of gay monoculture or LGBT culture that doesn't speak to them, they don't identify with, but they're still men who have sex with men. Maybe that's your guy, but it doesn't sound like your guy's having sex with men. Your guy just won't shut up about wanting to have sex with men. I guess if I was there, I wish I could, you know, watch the tape or hide in the closet and listen to him talk to you about this stuff. Cause I'm curious as to whether he's one of those guys like Madison Cawthorn, who's kind of playing gay chicken, really emphasizing how not gay he is by doing kind of coded gay shit. And that's pretty loud gay code there. I want that guy's dick in my ass. Or if he's confiding in you about his same sex attractions, same sex desires. If he's asking them for you to turn around and play along when he identifies as a thousand percent straight or completely a hundred percent unalloyed heterosexual. Yeah, that would be exhausting. I don't know how you help him with that. You can challenge him on that. Like, you know, for somebody who says he's 100% straight, you talk about having other men's dicks in your ass a lot. And I don't have a problem with that, but give me some help here. What is it that you want me to do when you say that I'm 100% straight? And then the drunkard you get, the hornier for cock you are. I am willing to go there. I'm obviously willing to be with a man who has same-sex desires, who is heteroflexible, bisexual, maybe not gay. I don't think as a woman you'd want to be with a closeted gay man, but you're willing to partner with a guy who's a little in the deck, but you don't want to be gaslit about it. You don't want to have to play rhetorical games. So yeah, I guess my advice for you, the best way that you could help him, if indeed you want to help him, is to just stop playing along. When he says he's 100% straight, I think at this point you have a right, the right to say, yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some Savage Lovecast listener tweets. Hey, Chris A. tweets, I think I listened to Dan's takedown of the sex pest husband in episode 815 about four times. The audacity to whine about not getting laid and want an open relationship when your wife just pushed your baby out of her made me rage. I feel so sorry for that man's wife, as do I, 
Chris A., as do I. Amanda K. tweets, Thank you, Dan, for saying everything I was thinking about the man who was mad that he isn't getting sex five months after his wife gave birth. The whole time I was thinking, pocket pussy, you fucker. If he had given birth and pushed a human out of his penis, he would never want to have sex again. And finally, Andrew Now We Dance tweets, Many adult children are living at home right now because they can't find a job that pays them enough to live on their own or find an affordable living place. Just because we live at home doesn't mean we are moochers or lazy. Hey, Andrew, sorry about that. I'm actually a big fan of multi-generational households. I grew up in one. I don't think kids who live at home with their parents are lazy moochers. I was talking about the kids in that call in particular. I called them moochers because even though they live at home with mom, they don't, according to the caller, who will soon be mom's ex-boyfriend, they don't help out. Living at home with your parents and refusing to drive your mom home from a doctor's appointment or just generally help out at all, not just financially help out, but logistically help out, that makes someone who lives at home with their parents a lazy moocher, not just living at home with the parents. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to everyone who posted about the show to social media this week, to your social media accounts. We really appreciate how you all spread the word about the Lovecast. And now, listener response calls. Hi, this is a response for the caller in 815 who was wondering if he should delete his pictures of his ex off of his Instagram. I was in the same boat. I ended a relationship of six years and still had pictures of my ex. And a friend of mine pointed out a very handy feature in Instagram, which is that you can archive pictures. So basically you preserve the pictures on your account. You can go back and look at them, but they're essentially private to the people that follow you. Hello, this is in response to the man who was wondering why his wife didn't want to fuck him after she had given birth. I loved the advice he gave, Dan, and I would just like to add, could it be possible that he could take out the trash, go pick up the groceries, fill the car up with gas, take it for a wash, finish the laundry, vacuum the house? None of these things are going to make your wife want to fuck you, but it does show that you are trustworthy and you are also a part of this relationship, part of the endeavor that you both agreed to, which is parenthood. And when she knows that you can be trusted and a little bit is taken off her plate and you are not another chore that is added to her long list, then perhaps she can trust you enough to let those knees fall apart again. Hey, this is a response to the caller wondering if she should go to her closeted college girlfriend's wedding. I totally agree with Dan's advice. And I want to add just a tidbit. Uh, I'm generalizing a bit here, but Persian weddings on average are such an amazing spectacle. They're so fun. Food's going to be good. Music's going to be good. Dancing's going to be good. The vibe's going to be good. Please go. Have a good time. We all need some dancing and good food in our lives after the pandemic. So be a good sport, go enjoy it and let us know how it goes. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. Check out Ryan O'Connell's new novel, Just By Looking At Him, which is out now and Queer as Folk on Peacock, starring Ryan O'Connell and a bunch of other really amazing people. Follow Ryan on Instagram at Ryan O'Conn. You can follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. You can also follow me on Instagram at Dan Savage. 
The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hertunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.